Verse, we'll start at verse 1, we'll go to verse 12. And when he returned to, to Capernaum after some days, remember he was out to the desolate places because of the crowd, and, and Mark just says, after some days, you don't know how long, he makes his way back to Capernaum, his home base, and after some days there, it was reported that he was at home, probably Peter's house. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made, and then they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that, they, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive on earth, to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise. Pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word this morning. And we pray this morning that you would show us our need for you today. Would you heal us from hypocrisy and our judgmental attitudes, and would you humble us, Lord, under your holy scripture? I pray, like I, we pray every single week, that you would show us Jesus. I pray we would find our life in him, our justification in him, our salvation in Jesus, and our joy in Jesus. Thank you for the gift that we have in you, and I pray, God, that you would you would anoint me and that you would use me. I'm so humbled and feel so inadequate to teach your word. I pray that you would speak today, God. Pray against Satan and his, his works and what he tries to do to keep us in darkness and blindness. I pray, God, that you would say, let there be light to our dark minds and our dark hearts today. And even in those areas, God, that are dark, that you would speak light to them today. Humble us under your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So last week, when we looked at, uh, at Mark chapter 1, the end of Mark chapter 1, we saw Jesus touching a leper. Now, nobody did this. Remember, we said leprosy was, this, was contagious at this time, had around all this folklore of like zombie, almost zombie folklore, and if you touched a leper, you would be unclean, but Jesus touched the leper, and then what, what's something that was very miraculous, we said that through this event, Jesus shattered the social and religious power structure of the day. By simply touching a leper, making him clean, Jesus was coming up against the power structure of that day. Touching and healing of the leper was this reversal of power due to the inbreaking kingdom of God. We said last week it's always been that the unclean contaminates what is clean. We read that really obscure passage, weird passage in Haggai chapter 2, where he says if you have a, a, a slab of meat in the fold of your garment, which is a weird concept, if you have a, a slab of meat in the fold of your garment, and you were to touch something that is unclean, would the fold, would the holy meat make that thing clean? And the scribes were like, no. But if something that is holy touches something that is unholy, 
does what is what is unholy made uh, or holy made unholy? And they said, yes. And so this, it was always that clean was contaminated by what is unclean. Holy wasn't, wasn't brought, brought forward. It was actually uncleanness that was brought forward. But with Jesus, there was a reversal of power. All of a sudden, when Jesus touched, purity advanced, not uncleanness advanced. Jesus came with a greater power. Jesus broke in. The kingdom of God broke in and brought a reversal of power. And Jesus comes with the story of a greater power than the power of uncleanness, of death, and of decay. Jesus comes with a greater power. And this new power that had entered into this world, this power to make lepers clean, was unprecedented and absolutely insane. So the first chapter in Mark's story of the real Jesus, as we're, we've, been, we've been looking at, has been about how Jesus brings and embodies the inbreaking kingdom of God. Jesus brings and he also embodies this inbreaking kingdom of God into the world. Not only does Jesus bring the message of God, he is the message of God. He brings it because he embodies it. And up to this point in the narrative, whenever Jesus preached about the kingdom of God drawing near, lepers were made clean. Whenever Jesus was preaching, lepers were made clean, the sick were healed, the power of darkness was expelled, and ordinary people found new direction for their lives. They left all and they started to follow him. So at the beginning of chapter two now, this new power is now pressing its claim one step further. What we see in our text is something that has never been thought of, even in the Old Testament. Jesus is pushing the power of God even further. Jesus claims to have authority and power to to forgive sins. If touching a leper and making a leper clean was unprecedented, this could only be seen, almost, as we'll see in our text, as blasphemy. For Jesus to claim, I have the power to forgive and pardon sins to the scribes was blasphemy. If, if touching a leper was unprecedented, this was like a little bit over the line. He stepped beyond the, the, the messianic thoughts and hopes of Israel. He went a little bit over the line here with, with saying, your sins are forgiven. In this section, what we'll see is the first mention of faith, uh, the advancing kingdom of God, and our greatest human need. So this first section, um, uh, the section in, in Mark, we'll see uh, the first mention of faith. This is the first mention of faith found in the book of Mark. Jesus was preaching the word out of what was probably Peter's home. And after the word got out that Jesus was there, droves of people started showing up, like always. They hear, hey, Jesus is at, at Peter's home or his home base where he's been staying. And I hear that he's preaching the word. And all these people start showing up. Homes then were like homes in San Francisco, really small, okay? You guys probably live in a really small home where if you threw a party, 15 people is like it's packed, right? This is how it was then. About 50 people could fit into a home there, 50. So they were wall-to-wall people, about 50 of them, and they spilled out into the doorway, out into the street to where if you try to get in, you couldn't even get into the doorway. It was that jam-packed as Jesus was preaching. People crowded inside listening to Jesus preach, And four men, who obviously heard that Jesus was there, and and they knew what Jesus was capable of, loaded their paralytic friend onto a mat, onto this gurney thing. And they brought him, and you can imagine carrying a paralytic on a mat would have been pretty difficult to do. 
And they carry him all the way to Jesus' house, and they realize that they cannot get in. The party is too packed. Jesus is preaching. It's like Walmart on the day after Thanksgiving. I mean, it's just like so packed. People are there, and they can't get in. They want to get Jesus in. They want to carry their friend in. They can't get him in. So they decide to do something that's pretty, uh, pretty crazy. They, they, they carry their paralytic friend up the side of the house. There were probably a ladder or stairs on the roof. And um, in, in, in an Israeli home during this time, uh, they would go to the roof on the cool of the night. They would go up there and they would, they would have dinner or they would, you know, whatever, on, on the roof of their home. And so there was access to the roof by the side of the house. And so they load their paralytic friend up on the roof and then they start to tear a hole into the ceiling and they lower their friend down. Now, a typical roof then in Israel was these wooden beams that were held up by uh, like stone or, or, or mud brick walls. And these beams were covered with reeds and thatch and layers of clay. So it wouldn't have been impossible to break through, but it would have been a scene. If you can imagine like them punching down a hole in this clay and then thatch and then you know, sticks are falling on people's head because the party's packed. And it's falling on people's head and they look up and there's like this ray of light comes in and these like four heads pop out. Like, oh, he's over there. So they're like busting a hole in just enough to lower their friend down. And if you're down below, I mean, this probably look really funny. Like, they, the, the hole opens up, four friends go like, oh, he's over there, okay, and then next thing you know, all of a sudden, this, like, mat rolls off. This guy's hanging there, and they're just, like, winching him down, like, belaying him down, and he just lowers, and everybody kind of gets out of the way, and he f- falls on the ground, and he's there on the ground. Now, the friends thought, if an opening to Jesus cannot be found, we'll make an opening. They make an absolute scene here in this home. And the crowd sees a paralytic being belayed down by four crazy men. But Jesus sees something totally different. Look at verse 5. Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw their faith. This is the first mention of faith in Mark's story. And Mark, and Mark significantly links faith with acting. He, he says what faith is is doing. It's doing something rather than knowing or feeling, because a lot of people know about Jesus. A lot of people think they have it figured out about Jesus, but what Mark links to faith in his story is acting, is actually doing. We know nothing of the beliefs of these four friends. We don't know what they believed about Jesus. We only know that they take action, including circumventing crowds and removing roofs to ensure that their friend is brought to Jesus. Therefore, faith is first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus, but active trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. In Mark's gospel, it's not simply what you know about Jesus. People, they don't know really that much in Mark's gospel about Jesus. It's what you do with what you know about Jesus. That's faith in Mark's gospel. They, these four men, including the paralytic, didn't know that much. They heard about what Jesus was capable of. That was it. And then they took a step. This is what Jesus sees. When he, these four friends lowered down this paralytic, these group of men just tore a hole in the ceiling. Jesus didn't see vandals. He didn't see psychotic, you know, Jonas Brothers fans or something. He didn't see crazy people on the roof. He saw faith. He saw active trust that they really believed he was sufficient to meet their friend's deepest need. John Stott says in Basic Christianity, this wonderful book, faith 
is born out of need. Faith is born out of need. We shall never put our trust in Christ until we have first despaired of ourselves. Christ is not this add-on to the rest of your life for a better life right now. That's not Jesus. It's, you don't know him until you need him. That's the biggest, that's how clear you'll see Jesus. When you have a huge need for Jesus, then you see him for who he really is. So they cross all these very difficult boundaries to get to Jesus. We don't know who these four men were in relation to this paralytic. We don't know if they were like, if it was their dad or their brother or their best friend or what. We don't know even know how this paralytic got paralyzed. We don't know any of that. But we can be sure they had given up hope in anyone else to get their friend to walk. And this paralytic surely knew that there was no hope in himself to get himself to stand. There was no hope, and Jesus was their only hope. Now, there's been a lot of, we've been talking a lot of diff, about uh, a lot of different motifs in Mark's gospel. And here we see a new motif. We saw it actually last week, but I didn't bring it up. This, it's called the boundary crossing motif. I like that. The boundary crossing motif. This brings up just another motif in, in the story where a, a social, religious, or customary boundary is crossed through a bold move to get to Jesus. It actually happens throughout all the gospel accounts. Last week we saw this leper cross ceremonial and religious boundaries to get to Jesus. He did not care if it was against religious law to touch or to get close to Jesus. He did it anyway. These men had no care, almost, for like, like party etiquette. You don't tear somebody's roof apart. That's like rule number three or something. That's up there, top five. You don't damage your friend's goods. You just don't do that. But he did. They did. And they crossed these boundaries to get their friends to Jesus. Now here's the point of the boundary crossing motif. Jesus receives people with some half-baked, messed up, and often incomplete faith. Jesus receives people with some messed up, half-baked, and often incomplete faith. It wasn't a clear knowledge of who Jesus was that caused Jesus to forgive this man and heal him of his paralysis. It was that his friends and him pursued Jesus and were willing to remove any obstacle, even a roof if necessary, to get to him. In Mark's narrative, it's this heart's motivation set to action and trust. Uh, somewhere else it's called in the Bible a childlike faith to get to Jesus. And you notice that Jesus takes these... Um, Sometimes weird acts of faith, and he sees them as faith, and he says, you're healed or you're forgiven. One of my favorite and most famous boundary-crossing stories is in Luke chapter 7. If you have a Bible, turn there. In Luke 7, Jesus is at a, a, a meal with some very powerful religious leaders. And he's having this meal with them, and a the meal was a big deal in, 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 uh, in Jesus' day. Having a meal with somebody, sharing a meal with somebody, we'll see next week, was a big deal. It was like becoming one with him. You shared out of the, the same bread and the same bowl, and you shared. And the hospitality was big there. And Jesus was sharing a meal, and this sinful woman, at, at worst, she was a prostitute. At best, she was a whore. And everybody knew that in the town. And she rolls up to Jesus, falls down at his feet, and starts weeping at his feet and crying. And her tears were falling on his feet. And then she started wiping them off with her hair. 
And the same thing kind of happens around this table. The religious leaders think something in their heart. They think, this guy was really a prophet. He would know who was touching him. And he goes, I heard that. Like they were thinking in his heart, their hearts. And Jesus was like, I have a story to tell you. And he shares a story about two people with two great debts. And one of them had a really big debt and one had a small debt. And he said, if they're both forgiven, who's more grateful? And they answer, one of them answered, well, obviously the guy who's forgiven a ton of debt. And he said, if you're forgiven much, you love much. And he says this in verse 44. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her, her tears and wiped them with her hair. You have give, gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has, is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's almost the same sort of story. It's another parallel story where Jesus sees a little bit messed up almost faith, a little bit incomplete as you and I would would think this girl is at best a prostitute or at worst a whore at your feet. If you you wouldn't even you shouldn't even be letting her touch you, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't even let not only lets her lets her touch him, but says you're forgiven of your sins. No matter how scant or scandalous, Jesus interprets these risky moves toward him as faith. Our text says when Jesus saw their faith. Jesus sees their faith. There's this whole subtext going on in our story where Jesus sees what no one else sees. He sees their faith. He sees what's in the hearts of the scribes and the, and, and the religious leaders. He sees what they think, and we can assume that he sees something in the heart of the paralytic as well. Jesus sees things that nobody, nobody else sees. In verse 5, look at, Mark, uh, look at Mark 2, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, here we see a little bit of the advancing kingdom of God. Conflict ensues because of what Jesus does when he tells this man, lying on the floor, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say, Son, you're healed, or be healed, or hey, pick up your mat and go home. He says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins. The power of the inbreaking kingdom of God is pressing its claim further than anyone expected the coming Messiah would. It was advancing where no one thought it would. Jesus claims to have authority and power to forgive sins. The Jewish people being an eschatological community, we said this a couple weeks ago, believed that Messiah would come and exterminate the godless in Israel, crush demonic power, and protect his people from the reign of sin. But the forgiveness of sins was never attributed to the coming Messiah. 
Not anywhere in the Old Testament. When you read the Old Testament, the, the Messiah coming to forgive sins, wasn't, it wasn't attributed to him. He would indeed crush the power of sin and sinners and usher in the rule of God, but tradition held that he wouldn't forgive people of their sins. What he would do is he would come like a warrior like Joshua or King David, and he would demolish Israel's army, not as a humble servant working from the margins, forgiving the sins of wicked humans. And this is why the scribes were so enraged. This is why they were so mad. This, what Jesus was saying was scandalous. You can't say that their sins are forgiven. See, scribes during this time were experts in the law. They were like custodians of sacred tradition. They saw their task as establishing clear-cut guidelines and boundaries when it came to the law. So they decide what is acceptable to God in all spheres of life. That was their job, their calling, their duty of a scribe. They had the final say so people might live in accordance with God's will. They were like the religious police of the day, having the power and the authority in the Jewish community. So a huge red flag came up for them when they said, when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, because they knew, and they said this right, they knew God alone forgives sins. You can't say, Jesus, that you forgive their sins. Only God can forgive sins. The scribes knew To presume to forgive sins is an arrogant affront to the majesty of God, which is blasphemy, which is punishable by death. And what Mark is saying here in this part of the story is that Jesus is beginning, this is the beginning of the end for Jesus. If Jesus goes through with this, if he presses this fact that he can forgive sins, they will kill him for blasphemy. They will want to put him to death. If he presses this issue, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and they in their hearts think, no one can forgive sins but God alone. But here's the irony. He can read their hearts. That's the irony in this whole story. Mark Mark loves irony, and he writes, I sometimes read Mark and just start laughing because he's so ironic. They're going, they're thinking in their hearts, and they're in their minds. Who does this guy think he is? He can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, I heard that. I know what you're thinking. Like, and he goes, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk or I can read your heart? Like, you name it, I'll do it all. And they're, they're, they're thinking in their heart, there's no way he can claim what he's claiming. But the ironic thing is Jesus could read their hearts. These scribes were thinking in their hearts and Jesus could read their hearts. The kingdom of God was pressing in deeper than anyone expected. This was a very, very, if this room was like that, this was a very tense moment. This wasn't just some guy saying your sins are forgiven. It was Jesus who displayed his power by preaching and casting out demons and healing the sick and touching the leper and making his spots go away. He had clout. He had traction during this time. But now he was in uncharted waters. Even concerning the Old Testament, he wasn't supposed to be saying anything about the power to pardon sins. And the scribes were right. Well, they were half right. Look at what it says in verse 7. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. This is what they thought in their heart. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus wasn't blaspheming. They're wrong there. But God alone can forgive sins. That was right. Forgiveness of sins remains everywhere the exclusive right of God. Everywhere in the Bible, only God can forgive 
Now pay attention, this is huge. Why? Why is it only Jesus or God that can forgive? Because God is always the most offended party when anyone sins. God is always the most offended party. No matter what sin is committed, no matter who it's against, all sin is sin against God. When King David sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband killed and broke literally five of the Ten Commandments, in one episode broke five of the Ten Commandments, he said in Psalm 51, verse 4, against you and only you I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Of course, he left a bloodbath behind him. He sinned against everyone, the nation of Israel, the throne, his family, Bathsheba, Bathsheba's family, Bathsheba's husband for having him killed, his future kids, the whole nation of Israel, everyone. But the most offended party out of everyone was the one who gave David his life breath. Nathan the prophet would come and confront David, and this is what he said in 2 Samuel. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if it were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? God is always the most offended party because he made you. Because what, when you sin with your eyes or when you sin with your mouth or your hands or your body or your heart, he made that. And so God is always the most offended party when anyone sins. All sin is ultimately sin against God. This is why God alone can forgive sins. He holds the power and the prerogative to pardon sins. You can ask, you can ask forgiveness from everyone in the universe, including yourself, and still feel the weight of sin upon your shoulders and the stain of sin upon your soul. Jesus knew this because what he says to the paralytic is the biggest twist in this story. Actually, if, if this was to happen today, people would actually get angry. This is the biggest twist. No one expected Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. And at first glance, it seems a little bit insensitive. Here's a guy lying on the floor a paralytic, unable to move, and Jesus is the most famous healer to ever walk the earth, who just in our last episode healed a leper, and he is able to heal him, and he's able to meet his immediate need, his felt immediate need right then and there, but Jesus doesn't. One book I read said, well, the reason why Jesus didn't heal him was because it was Jesus' home, or the reason why it says he's forgiven, because it, this was Jesus' house, and this guy just tore a roof in his home. And, then, and Jesus looks down at him and says, I forgive you for tearing a roof in my hole, or a hole in my roof. I forgive you. That's not what's going on here, okay? Jesus isn't going, dude, you just tore a roof, a hole in my roof. You just ruined my house. I forgive you, son. He's not saying that. There's something way, way different going on here, okay? This man is lying on the floor, floor and these four friends looking above, all thought the same thing. Okay, again, you have to remember, this whole scene, there's still four friends, like, peeking down from the roof, okay? They're just there, watching this whole drama take, take place. Jesus looks at them and goes, your sins are forgiven. They're probably going, wait, what sins? That's not what we brought them to you. They knew, those four friends on the roof and the paralytic on the ground, the most immediate need is healing. You can meet his deepest need. 
You can fulfill his life and give him meaning and purpose by making him walk. Do that, Jesus. And at first, Jesus says, no. Here's what's going on. Jesus is saying that the greatest need this paralytic had was not being able to walk, but being able to stand before God. Psalm 133 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? If God was to pile up your sins, who can stand before a holy God? Jesus knew this man, this man, it's not that he needed to walk, he needed to stand before God. He would actually, by Jesus saying this, walk into territory that no one else has actually ever walked into up to this point in Mark's narrative. Jesus is saying our greatest human need is to be forgiven by God. This is our greatest human need. And this might seem unsensitive and uncaring. Don't you know what this suffering man has gone through his whole life or however long he's been a paralytic? The things that he's not been able to do, how his whole life he's been this victim of things out of his control, do something about that. That's what you and I would say. But Jesus doesn't. Not at first, anyway. See, the main problem humanity has is never their suffering it's their sin. The main problem humanity has is never their suffering, it's their sin. That might be a very unpopular thing to say in this city. Suffering is real. We, if you watch the news, you've seen suffering all over the globe. Suffering is real and God deals with it and mobilizes his church to deal with suffering. But what lies at the heart of the gospel is our need for forgiveness. We need to be delivered from the wrath of God, the fear of death, and the power of sin. And the Bible teaches that this is true freedom. Not being free to walk or free to see or free to touch and be touched like the leper. The gospel is what really frees us. And what the gospel does, now this doesn't free us to go, oh, I'm free, I can do whatever I want. What the gospel does is it frees you and then it sends you back into the world to meet needs. See, during the Great Plague of London in the 1600s, it was the Christians that were moving into the city to care for the sick and bury the dead, while everyone who could was leaving London to get out of the way, out of, the way of the plague. All the Christians were moving in to care for the sick and the dying. Why? Because the gospel freed them from the fear of death. When they were asked, why do you move into the city when everyone else moves out of the city? They said, because the gospel frees us from the fear of death. We're not afraid to die. They had nothing to fear. So they went in and cared for the sick and buried the dead and caught the plague and died themselves. But they did it without any fear because the gospel freed them. Jesus is saying that true freedom doesn't come with a new pair of legs. Now, I know at the end of Forrest Gump, when Lieutenant Dan gets his new pair of legs, it's like everything is better now. He has a wife. He's sober. You know, he, sh he shaves, and he's going to Forrest Gump's wedding. He's like, you got a new pair of legs. And it seems like the new pair of legs solves his world. It's Hollywood, people, okay? That doesn't solve his life. Listen, Jesus is saying, that's not it. People who walk on two legs can do a lot of evil things. Actually, you probably you could do more evil with two legs than being paralyzed. So it's not like I'm going to heal you and you're going to be better. Actually, he can heal, heal this man and he can actually turn out worse. Being able to walk would not have made this man fit for the inbreaking kingdom of God. People who walk on two legs 
can still do very evil things. The problem is deeper. Here lies, and this is what Sinclair Ferguson says, here lies the heart of the gospel. Men need forgiveness. Jesus gives it. The degree to which you see your own need of that, uh, of that forgiveness is the measure of how clearly you understand the gospel. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And then Paul adds very humbly, of whom I am the foremost. The gospel absolutely humbles you. To go, I'm, Jesus forgave me, I'm the worst of sinners, that he would actually be able to forgive me. Now, our story in Mark, the scribes knew that God alone could forgive sins. So they think in their hearts against Jesus, he's committing blasphemy. He's committing blasphemy. Jesus doesn't draw back from the implication of divinity. Notice. He doesn't go, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. You guys took it over the edge. I wasn't saying that. I'm sorry. Back up. Time out. I'm not trying to say that I'm God or anything. He doesn't, he doesn't do that in this narrative. He doesn't back up. In fact, he tells them he can read their hearts, and then he asks them a question. Verse 8. And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? That's a really good question. Is it easier to forgive somebody as, when you're God, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Which is easier? Here's the point. Anyone can claim to forgive sins, but how would anybody know? Like, if Jesus went, I forgive your sins, and the guy's like, thanks. He's like, don't mention it. How would anybody know? The guy's still there laying. He's like, all right, back up. I mean, what do you do? Nobody knows what happened. Did, did Jesus really forgive his sin or not? No, no one knows. So Jesus says, what's easier to say? Now, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. To say your sins are forgiven. It's harder to say, take up your bed and walk, because if you said that, and you're just still lying there, you lost. It's failed. But if he gets up, everything changes. If Jesus can do the visibly harder thing of healing the paralytic, then he certainly can do visibly easier thing of forgiving his sins. That's the point. And look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Now, you can imagine everybody leaning in now. Okay? So if Jesus is there, and he says, so that, and the, him and the, this is the first time him and the scribes have had, had a, had a um, had like a, an encounter, a conflict in, in Mark's narrative. So he looks to the scribes like, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins, and everybody like leans forward. And the, the place was packed, so they're like, everybody's tippy-toeing, and people on the roof are still looking down. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, and he picked up his mat, and he went out before them all, and they were all amazed. Even the scribes were like, Oh my, oh my gosh. You can imagine his friends on the roof just going nuts, like grabbing to them, oh my gosh. And he just walks out, he grabs his mat. I would love to see this guy's face. I can't wait. I really believe in heaven. You'll get to see like real to real of like stuff back in the day. And you're like, Jesus, I want to see that scene again. And his face going, and he grabs his mat and he's like, you know, I don't know what he said to the, to the, to the scribes. He's like, I'm out or like, what? Or like, just like clicked his heels. I don't know what he did. But he rolled out, and everybody just makes his way, and he just meets his friends outside, and they, you know, they go party. They never saw anything like this. Nothing. The reason this paralyzed man was brought to Jesus was not because he was a sinner. 
It wasn't clear. Everyone in the room wasn't going when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. I was like, ooh, praise God for that. I mean, there wasn't like a heroin needle in this guy, and it was like, like bottles of like booze everywhere, and he's lowered down and just all drunk and like spun out and stuff. That wasn't it. Nobody knew, like, his greatest need is not forgiveness. It's a healing. But to say this man was crippled because of his sin is not part of the narrative. To say, well, the reason why he's crippled is because he sinned. That's not what's going on here. What the narrative suggests is that all human brokenness is due to sin's effects. And the inbreaking kingdom of God was showing that spiritual and physical healing are not worlds apart. They're actually combined. This is what William Lane says. He comments on this and says, It is not God's intention that man would live with the pressure of death upon him. Sickness, disease, and death are consequence of the sinful condition of all men. Consequently, every healing is driving back the driving back of death and an invasion of the province of sin. That is why it is appropriate for Jesus to proclaim the remission of sins. It is necessary to think of the corresponding sin it is unnecessary, sorry, to think of the corresponding sin for each instance of sickness. There is no suggestion in the narrative that the paralytic's physical suffering was related to specific sin or was due to hysteria induced by guilt. Jesus' pronouncement of pardon is the recognition that man can be genuinely whole only when the breach occasioned by sin has been healed through God's forgiveness of sin. Our biggest problem is sin. And our greatest need is forgiveness. Apart from the forgiveness of Jesus, we are all like this paralytic, unable to stand before God. Our sins are too heavy. Our guilt is too grave. We are all unable and unworthy to stand before God. And I'm not just talking about the Ten Commandments. You're like, dude, don't put your Ten Commandments trip on me. Anything that you try to hold to, whatever law you decided to live by, when you move to San Francisco and go, this is my new law, this is the way I'm going to live my life now, whatever law that you set up to live when you moved to this city or whatever, when you moved out of your parents' home, whatever, you broke that law too. Every single one of them, everyone has failed from their own standard, no matter if it's, no matter what your ethical code is, if it's, I'm going to live by the the law of Moses, you broke that. I'm going to live by the teachings of Jesus, you broke that. Or the convictions of our society, or Buddhism eightfold path, or Islam's five pillars of conduct, or your New Year's resolution, you broke that as well. Whatever it is, we have not succeeded in observing. We are all self-condemned. And it doesn't matter what law you want to live by, you're self-condemned. Romans says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. I think that's beautiful. This is why. You can't claim self-righteousness because of a lifestyle choice or a political party. We are all guilty, and we all need Jesus. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There is forgiveness in Jesus. Some people have a, a problem with this section of Scripture because Mark uh, mentions nothing about repentance. He doesn't say that this paralytic repented. He doesn't say, okay, Jesus, I repent. I'm on this mat. I repent. Forgive my sins. There's no repentance. Remember, the whole subtext is Jesus reading everyone's heart. There must have been something in this paralytic's heart that, that, he, that knew 
he was messed up and that his problems were, ran way deeper than being unable to walk. And Jesus was able to work with that. Jesus was able to work with this simple, childlike spark of faith, and he forgave this man. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and grief to bear. Let's turn to Jesus now in prayer, and whatever obstacle is in your way, let us cross it by faith with active trust that Jesus is sufficient to meet our deepest and most heartfelt needs. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that we have a friend in you, Lord, that you've come to heal us and to set us free and to wash away our sins, God, that you did that and you took it upon yourself, Lord. We thank you that you knew by healing this man and forgiving his sins, he, you would set in motion a, a plan by these scribes to ultimately send you to the cross, but you went willingly. You went to die for us. I pray you would set people free. I pray whatever spark of faith that, that people would have, that you would, you would see that, you would see deep into our hearts this morning, God. We love you, and we thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.